<clears throat> so last week I said that we were um, two more uh, in Proverbs. It's funny actually because in Proverbs and in Revelation it says don't add to this word. Uh, and it feels like maybe I was trying to add to it. Uh, I was going to say there was two more weeks of um, Proverbs when in fact there is not. <laughs> so now what we've done is we've moved on to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is uh, what I think is actually a 13 week uh, sermon series uh, and we'll be looking at dissecting um, understanding what Jesus wants us to see in the Sermon on the Mount maybe um, maybe debunk some things that we've understood that probably may not be right about what Jesus said maybe uh, innocently as it were we're, we're we're trying to learn about Jesus and maybe sometimes we get carried away with certain words that he might have used and actually uh, we find sometimes that the words being used to translate to English are not always what they appear to be. Uh, so we're going to look really at this whole study, understand what the Beatitudes are about in this week, this series, verses 1 to 12. Uh, Jesus, as we come to look at this, had been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and he'd been calling for people to repent. And now what has, in what has been described as the manifesto of his kingdom, Jesus unveils the foundations and character of life in that kingdom. Here, he teaches the ethical guidelines for life in his kingdom. And the guidelines point to the quality of righteousness that characterizes life in the kingdom. I think this does lead nicely uh, from our series in Proverbs uh, that we just had. As each saying, as we'll read today, is proverb-like. Cryptic, precise, full of meaning. Each one includes a topic that forms a major biblical theme. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they, uh, Jesus does not hold back with dealing with some topical but controversial issues of the time and, and uh, still of today. One of the major word themes that comes up is the blessed. And I think before we get into that is, is to understand what this word means. What does this word mean uh, when it says blessed? And it would be easy to relate this word blessed to uh, with happiness. Blessed, happy are those who do X, who do X, Y, Z. But it is so much more than that. You see, being blessed is not about whether a certain event in our lives had a positive effect on us materially or emotionally but being blessed is like an inner peace that comes through faith in God that transcends any definition of positive or negative and we see this more so unfortunately uh, around that we want to for some reason in churches we want to appeal to people's experience and that's not what church is for. Church is here to teach the word, to tell you about the amazing work and gift found in Jesus Christ. Being blessed or blessed means that regardless of what the external worldly circumstance around us has on us, we have an eternal peace. It cannot be moved. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be removed from us by any other force. 
That is why the Bible teaches to rejoice both in happiness and under persecution. Happiness in itself is therefore not enough to bring about salvation. Being happy in the Lord is more than that. Contentment in our spirit, being aligned with Jesus in faith, is the real happiness and contentment. And therefore will have an effect on our character, despite what happens in the world. So when Jesus says, blessed are they, he's not only describing them as being filled with an inner sense of joy and peace, because they're right with God, but he is praising them for their character and pledging divine rewards for it. All of these character traits are marks and goals of all Christians. There's no escape from our responsibility to desire every one of these spiritual attributes. So with that, let's go through each of the blessings and understand the application for each. As we look at the first one, Matthew 5 verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him. Jesus saw the crowds coming to him. He went up on the mountainside and sat down in what is considered the well-known posture of a teacher. The traditional location of this mount is the low hills behind the region of Capernaum and the other fishing villages on the shore. His disciples came to him, and so Jesus began to teach them. And what follows is effectively the, Jesus' material, Jesus' uh, teaching. In Matthew's record, Jesus will speak and teach. And it is God speaking, but no longer through inspired human uh, personalities like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Samuel. Now the truth of God speaks through the exact personality of God himself. And so this is when, when we come and we, we think about the Sermon on Mount, we think we know today, as there was many doubts back then as whether Jesus was actually God, and many, many doubted him. Today, we look at this and we say, here's God speaking on a mountain. God has come in person, and he has allowed me to be in the audience, and he is about to speak. So, in some ways, our, our, our understanding of the Sermon on Mount is different to those that were there at the time. And certainly for the disciples probably very few, like the disciples, had that same view where they're thinking, well, God is about to speak. God is going to say something. And so the first thing he says, verses 2 and 3, and he began to teach them, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's he telling us? We must know that the poor in spirit is not exclusively poor in wealth. It also speaks of poverty in spirit, as the word suggests. It's not only a material poverty, but more importantly, it describes people who are afflicted, oppressed. They are powerless and without hope. In fact, poor people in Jesus' day were oppressed because of their poverty. And so had very little power anyway. And so there was, in effect, no way out once they were in poverty. If you were poor, you were oppressed. If you were oppressed, you were unable to get out from poverty. It was circular. It was a trap. And a trap of the world today. 
But Jesus says here, there is a better way out of the poverty of that poverty in spirit. He instead could fulfill the needs that needed to be fulfilled in the spirit. Again, finding that contentment. Is it in the worldly things or is it in my spirit through the Holy Spirit? Am I content enough despite my circumstance? What the poor in spirit had, which no one else had, was humility. This meant that it was actually about coming in humility to God to repent of sin. That there was nothing the rich could do that will buy them into heaven or anything the poor don't have which could exclude them from heaven. Everyone was welcome. So everyone who wishes to enter the kingdom must be spiritually poor. And that's not a thing you need to try to be. We are spiritually poor without Jesus if we don't believe in him. We are by default spiritually poor. Instead, it is an acknowledgement that we are spiritually poor that needs to happen. You don't earn your way to be spiritually poor. Without Jesus, the fact is we are. The poor person is not excluded because of their poverty. And the rich person is not accepted because of their wealth. Both must come and humble themselves before the Lord in order to be part of this kingdom. Whoever you are, you are no better, certainly, than God. No matter the accomplishments you've made, no matter how good you might be, Jesus is perfect, and that cannot be topped. But here it is. He says, there's no way you can do that, so I'm going to give you a way to do it. He says, no matter what you do, no matter how good you look, that won't make it. God won't let you in anyway. You won't get eternal life. You won't get salvation. So instead, he says, give that up. Stop trying and just accept that we're in need of salvation. Accept that you are in need, that I am in need of a God who has given the gift of salvation to all people. Who come to him and say, Lord, I confess I'm in sin. I'm a rebellion to you. Lord, will you forgive me? And yes, he does. Well, let me say this, that the temptation and sometimes what is maybe inadvertently taught is that once a person comes to Jesus, it is to then be self-sufficient. It's not easy to spot, it's not easy to notice, but I've seen that maybe sometimes when we come, when people come to Jesus, there's like a, I can use him as my launch pad. I can go and be successful and, and do loads of things and be great. And No. Jesus is not a one-time moment. Believing in Jesus means your life changes. means that I'm no longer the one who can accomplish and I acknowledge I cannot accomplish my life in eternity. I can't do that because I am full of sin. I compare nothing to God of my own. Maybe the attitude can be, I have Jesus, I'm in heaven now and I'm going to do any, anything and everything I want to do. Instead, it is the revelation 
that the believer now needs to be entirely dependent on the all-sufficient God in prayer and obedience. That is our first verse, the first command that Jesus gives. He says, come and be yourself. Don't dress yourself up. Don't pretend to be something else. Acknowledge that you need Jesus. And what's the reward? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Leave here with nothing, gain everything in heaven. What a deal. No other deal in the world offers you that. He then moves on. He says, and he began, sorry, that's not worked. That's verse four. Yes. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You'll notice that as we go through, some of them don't match one another. Some of them don't uh, connect with one another. That's on purpose because what he's setting out is, is a set of characteristics. And then as we go forward through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get more detail about how these things work. It's okay that they're not necessarily connected. So what does this mean? What's mourning mean? It, I find it amazing that when we look at this, again, this is why we need to understand how, what the words really mean. Because we can take words like mourn and we'll later learn what peace is about and go, well, mourn must be mourning someone. It is, but it's more than that. It's, it's so much more than that. And especially so for the Christian. It's got a bigger significance than maybe that of mourning a loved one, though it does form part of it. We might mourn today because we see the war in Ukraine. Seeing someone who has inflicted pain on a country who himself seems to be twisted, who himself seems to take Bible verses and take them completely out of context. Listen, I'm not of the, the conspiracy theorists that say that Putin is the Antichrist and all that stuff. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Men do this all the time. People who are hungry for power take God's word and they twist it and they use it for their own means. That will not stop until the day Jesus returns. In fact, we know that in Revelation, the Antichrist, however and whoever he is, will himself claim that reward, pretend to be Jesus, pretend to be the Trinity. Why do they do that? Because they know this power is amazing. And they think they can get it just by claiming to be something they are not. But we mourn because it reveals to us a bigger state of mankind who refuses to bow the knee and submit to God. In regards to the time uh, Jesus made this statement, it was in regard to Israel. It had a, a ruthless ruler because of their sin or rulers because of their sin. It had bad leaders because of their sin towards God. They, in effect, got what they asked for in how they behaved. Jesus came to tell them that if they mourn in this way with a contrite heart, that the nation is in need of repentance before God, then they'll be comforted by Jesus. The comfort would come because the Messiah would save them from sin, the cause of their mourning. And I keep going back to this church. You don't have to choose. No one has to choose to mourn 
as it were, against God, to, to mourn in a way that's not befitting a believer. You don't have to do that. You can mourn because now what we're doing, we're mourning because we see the wrecked world around us because of sin. We don't just mourn because we mourn loved ones passing. Sometimes that reminds us of the world around us, that we do end up dying, that this place we will leave. But mourning, as Jesus describes here, is, is like a, a pain that we're, we're watching the world and seeing, wow, Lord, the, the world is full of sin. The world is broken by sin. So as Christians, our mourning is not just about the suffering and sadness of life, but the sinfulness that it causes. So because of the salvation of Jesus this morning is actually not in vain. It is actually, as we'll find many times, and you'll see many times in the Bible, it is a morning with hope. We don't stop at the fact that uh, it reminds us of a broken world. Actually, we think, but Lord, there is a way that it can be fixed. People can come to you and put their trust in you and be restored, redeemed, and receive salvation. And that's the hope we have in Jesus. That is the hope for the world as Christians that we have today. We don't condemn because what we want to see is people saved. As people face the sadness of life, they can do so with hope. If they have mourned over sin, and it is a clear sign of faith in the Saviour. And so, as Jesus says, they will be comforted. goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Who are they? Galatians 5, 22-23 tells us, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is a particularly hard set of characteristics to develop. And consistently maintain. If I said there was a person who existed outside of Jesus who could do all these things and is all those things, you would rightly be able to call me a liar. There is no one else that can manage all these things except Jesus. But let's be clear. What Jesus talks about is not a weak meekness. Some people, I think, uh, and there's different ways to look at this, when Jesus uh, was slapped across the face, some people see that as weakness. In fact, the tradition uh, in Jewish culture would be what side of the face he was slapped on. I believe it was the left side of Jesus' cheek uh, that was slapped. What this was, and why Jesus didn't respond, was it showed strength. What he didn't do was just, oh, you can just trample all over me. What this was meant to be a sign of was that Jesus stood firm. That no matter what was done to him, he would still believe, he would still be Jesus, he would still be God, he would still carry out the work of his Father, and accomplish it. He would stand 
strong and then stand, as the verses tell us. So what it really says is, again, that principle of spiritual contentment. It does not mean I'm passive to the point of almost unconsciousness or unawareness of what is going on around me. We are, in fact, to be like Jesus is, active, effective meekness. They're not merely passive characteristics, but active characteristics. They do things to people. They affect people. When you read about Jesus, what you see and what he does, did anyone walk away again? Whatever. Did they? I don't remember. I, I read the, book, the Bible and I think every time you met someone, they did something. Good or bad, they responded to what he did. They reacted. Active meekness. He's doing stuff. Even if it seems like he's this guy walking around like a hippie, sort of, hey, peace guys, peace guys. No, he's not. It's active meekness that affects people, actually changes people. So we need to be both actively pursuing meekness through the Holy Spirit, but also actively applying them in our lives. This might leave you with maybe a sense of contradiction. I want that. I, I do want that at times, but at times I'm not that. I'm not that person. I'm not that meek Christian. I'm not the one who, who works in the power of the Spirit all the time. And that, that's fine too, because our desire is to do that though, right? Romans 7. It's an amazing piece of scripture. Romans 7, 14 to 25. What, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I, I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good if I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Are you confused yet? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I haven't missed, I've missed some verses there, haven't I? Let me read this out in here because I've missed some verses. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Even though Paul says that he is carnal, it doesn't mean that he is, he is not a Christian. 
his awareness of his carnality, his sinfulness, shows that God is at work in him. So when we say, when you question what you do, just that very aspect alone of questioning your actions at times, here's the Spirit of God working in you, saying, hold on a minute, have a look at that. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm aware of this stuff, I know it happens. And I would tell you that believers, are, um, sorry, unbelievers are not aware of this stuff, which is why they don't question it. They don't question their actions. Yet as Christians, we might feel bad about doing these things. And of course, we should learn not to do the things that are sinful and that dishonor God. Paul says, there's a battle going on here. The first key step is to be aware of it. Be aware of what's going on. Be aware of what's trying to drag you away, trying to make you not honour God. The choices that are presented to you, the temptation that is given to all of us. To be aware that meekness must, at the very fundamental level, be an awareness that the flesh is sinful. And so we should be displeased with that. And in turn, we praise God through it because we're also spiritual. Are you confused yet? Actually, it's not that confusing. It's just the way Paul words it that sounds confusing. Right now, as Christians, what we've done is we've accepted Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We are now believing in him and we trust in him. So when we do something that doesn't align with that, through the Holy Spirit, he says, hey, that doesn't honour God. Have a look. Pray to God. Give it to him. Then we acknowledge that only Jesus can put this flesh to its final death. In the meantime, we desire to serve in the Spirit. We want to serve in the Spirit. We want to be holy as God is holy. Even if our flesh wants to do otherwise. That is how we inherit the land. From Jesus' time here, we're promised a new heaven and the new earth. It was a temporary and physical place in the Old Testament in the promised land, but it was also a foreshadowing of what was to come eternally in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns. So maybe some of these do connect to it. The next one I think kind of does, right? Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How do we become meek? I must thirst for righteousness. I must thirst for what God wants, what God has. I must recognize that righteousness is his, and I can't compare to that. But in, these, in this particular verse, what we'll see in some ways is it's very much in the vein of what the lesson was to be uh, in when he fed the multitudes later in, in Matthew. He was teaching them now that the core principle is that in as much as we might hunger and thirst for food and drink, 
we might hunger and thirst for that which is greater and eternal. John 6, verse 26 to 35 says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do? Uh, to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's it. Believe in him. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It has been said uh, that righteousness... Uh, that Jesus talks about here works like this that the basic desire to be right with God is met with this gracious gift of righteousness and we call this justification being declared righteous in the courts of heaven by which we don't deserve then as a disciple of the saviour a desire to do righteous works will find fulfillment by the power of the spirit this we call practical sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ. And in the future when the Lord returns and establishes his righteousness, we shall be changed. This we call glorification. Being transformed into the glorious state. That is righteousness. And it is an incredibly long and hard journey. We are faced in a world that wants to uh, tell us not to seek that righteousness. To put ourselves first above all things. To have our own self-interest be number one. And yet Jesus says, but that's not the way. So how do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like it's the very substance that keeps us alive. You must have been so hungry at some point in your life that you must have thought, I can't wait to have a big slap-up meal. There must have been a time when you thought, above all things, I've had it. I'm going to go and fight. I'm going to have a massive meal. I'm, going to, I'm, just, I'm so hungry. I've not eaten all day. I'm going to do it. Do you see like a glimpse of like the thirsty? Like we will do mostly anything and everything to feed ourselves. Like on a, on a serious note, we, we see this already, right? We see people running out of food. We see people not being able to feed themselves. And what happens? Lawlessness. What happens is people will just go because they want to live. They want to survive. So how do we seek this? Righteousness. How do we so hunger and thirst for it that it's like nothing on earth? It begins with commitment to God's will. 
Then as the spiritual walk is guided by the Holy Spirit, he leads the believer into righteousness. And the closer we live to the Lord, the more sensitive we become to the unrighteousness and injustice in a sinful world. Then we might, as spiritual people, begin to long for righteousness in this supernatural way. If you live to the Lord, you will live away from the world. This is why I say very often, there is no way we can have both. There is no way you can take everything with you and yet still have God as your Lord and Saviour. There has to be an acceptance at some point that to have Jesus in your life is an all or nothing decision. He goes on. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's interesting as you read this verse and realize that it is a, it's, it's kind of circular in nature. What I mean by that is that those who are merciful can only be merciful, this is getting Paul-like now, uh, can only be merciful because they themselves have been shown mercy of God through Jesus Christ. That, that bit, he's kind of like, that, that's a given. The, the, the blessed are the merciful, the merciful are the ones that already uh, acknowledge that Jesus gave them mercy, that God gives them mercy. They can only be merciful because they themselves have been shown mercy. Most of the time we do things or repeat things uh, as they have been shown to us. Uh, many of us learn that way, others learn a different way. And it is true to say that you can ap apply this circular principle to many of these blessings because God has done them first. What is absolutely crucial in many of these blessings is that God has made a way for these things to happen in the first place. But mercy is particularly important. In order to have it and to show it, we must first know what mercy revealed to us is. That it must be revealed to us first. And what did it do? Mercy showed us our own inadequacies. It showed us that we needed to depend on God. It showed us our weakness, our incompleteness. What mercy reveals first to the Christian is that we are not able to be merciful by nature. Sin tells us that we are not. In fact, we have a very short limit on our patience, on our own mercy with others. Instead, it is because we've been shown by Jesus first. So what we do is we don't depend on our level or our ability to be merciful, rather we depend on him who is merciful. So every time we, we, we get caught up in, oh Lord, that, that was not, I was not showing mercy, the way to, to try and resolve that is to remember Jesus on the cross. Go back to the word. What does the word say about what Jesus did? It was mercy, beyond all mercy. If Jesus is not on that cross, there is no mercy. It is over, church. People who know more of God's mercy will be ever more merciful 
I'm not saying you're going to be like God. I'm not saying you're going to be ever, ever merciful. I'm saying that in this time we will learn how to be more merciful as days go by. So we also need to walk every day in the knowledge that mercy is constant and active right now. Right now, before Jesus returns, mercy is operating. It's right now, in this moment. The very words I, I speak, I say, my breath, everything, in the very milliseconds that we're here today, as each moment comes with the next moment, mercy is operating. Do you know when mercy stops? When Jesus comes back. If Jesus came back within the next five seconds, mercy is over. People who do not believe in God will not be going with him. That is sad. That's hard. Especially when you think of the amazing gift of salvation and spend eternity with God. What is important in not becoming conceited is to constantly live in the fact that the grace of God is something we do not deserve. And let me be clear, this is not about being depressing or negative. When you acknowledge in reality that it's something we don't deserve, we have it. Do you understand what I mean? It doesn't stop at going, oh, well, we just don't deserve it. It's happened. Jesus did it, so he showed us that we don't deserve it, and then went, but there's a way out. Jesus said, I can, I can be your way out. The reality of our own spiritual condition and God's provision must never be forgotten. We're not here to, to lash ourselves. We're not here to, to be negative. We're here to be real, church. We're here to look at the Bible and go, that's me right there, who Jesus is talking about. But glory to God. I'm going to be with him. Glory to God, my sin is gone. He has forgiven me. And I didn't deserve it. And so then he goes on, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I think this is a nice connection to the last one, actually. One aspect of a pure heart is most certainly the realisation that we have a sinful one that is undeserving of God's mercy. But the main focus of this blessing in particular is to show us what sits at the centre of the choices we make, the desires we have and our thoughts and intentions. From the pure of heart come only good things, acts of love and mercy, desires for righteousness and justice, decisions that please God. From an impure heart, comes selfishness and therefore the cause of pain. Matthew 15, 18 to 19 says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So by default, our heart is sinful. It's in need of mercy in order to be exposed to Purity and salvation only found in Jesus. The transformation from a heart of flesh to a pure heart will come by following Christ. But it will not be easy and it will not be a swift change. Yes, your life changes in the sense that we go, I don't want to live like this anymore and I'm going to turn and face Jesus and live like him. 
But from that point on, our struggle is against bigger things. In a sense, it's no longer the, the little things that annoy us in the world that, that might get on our nerves. Now it's spiritual battles. Now it's things that will try and tell us, no, 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 this Jesus bloke didn't exist. This cloud king you keep talking about, he's not real. Those are the bigger issues that will come up against you every single day. And so it's not easy and it's not swift. But those who enter the kingdom of righteousness must have this heart. And so it must begin with conversion. Uh, conversion When God gives us a new heart, it must begin with, Lord, give me a new heart. And that only comes by submission to what is true and has been done by Jesus on the cross. It continues through the spiritual growth as we follow Christ, walking in the light, meaning learning to live by the word of God. And it will change the way we think so that our hearts will grow more and more pure. But as we continue, the light of the word will reveal the impurities of that walk. So we must deal with them and change as God reveals them to us. Get into prayer, get into the word. When things don't seem to be going right, when you don't feel like you're honouring God, it's okay, he forgives. That's what Jesus was about, that's what Jesus is for. No need to re-persecute Jesus on the cross. In fact, the Bible tells us not to do that. Do not re-persecute him again. It has been done. Lord, forgive me, and it will be done. He goes on, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Here's another one about peace. The peacemaker is not uh, to be a good negotiator. Uh, it's not someone who is really good at keeping the peace. Jesus is not calling for people to make peace in the world. In fact, if you read the gospel, our faith in Jesus and what he teaches is very much anti the world. It's very much against what he teaches. Now, for some, it will bring peace to them because we're given the gospel, we're sharing it with them and saying, here is a saviour, the saviour that can save you. And for some, it will bring them peace. For others, they'll bring war. They'll not want that. And sadly, but rightly, there is no version of the Bible that says peace in the world will come. Not in this time. It will come when the new heaven and the new earth is here. But it won't come in this world. In fact, we're told in Revelation that the Antichrist will bring a false peace. Meaning that he will bring peace to the world, not to man. It's an appearance of peace. In the same way that Jesus isn't talking about that kind of peace. He isn't saying, oh, you'll just be happy, right? Everyone will just be really peaceful with one another. And worse still, as we've studied in Revelation, that peace will be deceptive by nature. And what he's, what he's going to use that for is to get a foothold in people's hearts. He's going to make people worship him. God, oh, this, is, this is the Messiah. This is the guy that's like, amazing. He's brought peace in Israel. He's brought peace. And people go, wow, amazing. But it's not real peace. It's temporary peace. 
is so it serves him, so it serves his agenda. So peace in the world does not mean peace in the heart of man. A quote from John McCarthy, he says, the Bible predicts that there's coming a world peace. It will come, but listen, it will be a deceptive peace. It will be a false sense of security. Real peace can only be found if the hearts of men and women are changed and turned towards God. Uh, sorry, let me read the rest of John MacArthur's. He says, it'll be the most subtle and the most deceptive trap that's ever been set because it will catch the world in it and they'll be caught and they'll be destroyed. Colossians 3, verse 13 to 17. Bear with each other. Give one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What did he not say? He said, let the peace rule in the world. He not say that. He says, let the peace rule in your heart. Not a peace as in peace from war, as in do you have peace with Jesus? Are you okay with everything that goes on? Because ultimately, it really doesn't matter because I have Jesus. And there's nothing more that I need. Christ and Christ alone. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to be peace and be thankful. Everything tells us that peace of Christ is found in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Real peace has to first start with submission to God, to see the revelation of sinfulness and so find peace in the one who died for all sin for all time. Whatever happens outside of us and to us is a consequence of a sinful world inhabited by sinful people. So the peace in the world you will not find. But peace with Jesus in your heart, oh yes you will. Those who are peacemakers are then first and foremost people who understand what true peace is. Their effort is to strive to establish a peace that embraces God's provision of peace. So that people will be in harmony with one another because they are at peace with God. That's why that verse in Colossians is so relevant. Speaking to believers together, coming together and saying, one thing you have in common is you have peace in Christ. That share among each other. When we embrace that, then we'll be called sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 to 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, oh, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Hang on, church, we're nearly there. 
We're nearly there. We're learning the Bible. It's okay to be tired. The life of a Christian is tiring. But I want, I want us to understand this so when we leave this place, you're going away with the word. Okay? Sometimes it takes a bit longer. So I'm going to ask a couple more minutes. Okay? A couple more minutes. It's so important. This sets up everything. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To one degree or another, those who want to live a life marked by Jesus will find opposition. You're asking for trouble, church. We know that the word of God either attracts or repels, but either way, for the same reason. That it reveals who we really are in the light of God. That it's either accepted in submission or rejected in sinfulness. So this beatitude is specifically for followers of Christ. Those who suffer persecution for the sake of righteousness. Righteousness above anything that happens to me. And as the next verse clarifies to, to the disciples, that means suffering for Christ's sake. The warning here is, that to do and live out all the other blessings will to some degree or another mean you will invite persecution on yourself. All these blessings are the opposite to how the world would want us to be. And so it will be against those in Christ. Genuine righteousness is offensive. It offends. I cannot see Jesus on the cross. And see how they were offended by him. You wouldn't do that to someone if really deep in your heart you knew he was right. So we need to be prepared for the opposition. The world persecutes Christians because the values and character expressed in these beatitudes are so opposite to the world's manner of thinking. Our persecution may not be much compared to others. But if no one speaks evil of us, we might need to ask ourselves, are these Beatitudes a trait of our lives? If no one recognises Jesus in us, just like I said last week when we, we talked about John, when they're, when they're there in front of the Sanhedrin, and they said they knew they had been with Jesus. Do people know we've been with Jesus, that we are with Jesus? It's not so much in words. It's just something, isn't it? There's something that we're not quite, we don't quite fit in the world. We don't quite fit in this temporary place because it's not our home anymore. We're visiting now. Believers in Jesus, our home is to come. The good news is that the blessing stated here for those who suffer such persecution in this world is that their destiny will be a complete contrast to their present humiliation. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to add a little ha ha. Na 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 na. And he says, finally, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
literally we could translate this phrase to say that the persecuted should leap for joy. That's what this actually the translation is. It's almost an understatement, these words, rejoice and be glad. Actually, it's to lose your, your mind in Jesus. It's to... <laughs> what else is there to do? It's because the persecutor will have great reward in heaven. And because the persecuted are in good company. The prophets before them who were also persecuted. So the blessings are not merely ways to be nice or a good person. They're preparation and a reality for what a Christian life needs to be marked by. What the Christian desires to be true in their life. It is to live to Christ and die to self. And I'll leave you with this last quote. Thank you for holding on. Lord, keep me low. Empty me more and more. Lay me in the dust. Let me be dead and buried as to all that is of self. Then shall Jesus live in me and reign in me and be truly my all in all. It's an amazing quote. I think it's great to end on. Are we, are we prepared to say this? Are we prepared to acknowledge this? Keep me low, empty me. I don't want anything me getting in the way of Jesus. I don't want none of me getting in the way of his plan and his mission. This is every day. Every single day. We wake up with a new set of pride. Every single day, don't we? Every day pride resets the clock. And without this, without us going back to God and seeking him, remembering, and remembering our place in the presence of a, an amazing God, of a majesty of God, we can, we can get lost in our own success. We can even get lost in, a, in our own persecution, as it were. But, oh Lord, remove it. Take all that away, all the self that's involved. Jesus fills the rest. Let's pray and then we'll worship as we close our service. Lord.